Here's a little wooden heart. It's um, it's hand carved. It's about the size of a a uh, big A4 sheet of paper, and it must have been done by the child's siblings because it's kind of childish jointy upwriting carved into the wood. And there's a heart on the top of it with an arrow through it, a little teddy bear, and it reads, "Dear baby." We miss you, but now you are gone. You are in our hearts. That's where you belong from the day you left us. And we all think of you. We love you. And there's a tiny pair of booties. Absolutely tiny. Filled up with rainwater. Loads and loads of drenched teddies. Piles of them. A little hand painting there on wood of an angel holding a baby who's stillborn in the rotunda. Little boy. Another baby in heaven, one Angel Moore, sadly missed by his mum, dad and family. Um, Pierce Matthew would be 30 on the 1st of June this year. It took me about 10 years to go to see the Holy Angel plot where when he died, my friend used to say it's a beautiful place and I never got the courage really to to go and see for myself. So this particular day I went up and um, I wasn't impressed at all to see huge, big, big, Big area and uh, full of scorched earth and not at all what I was told it was like. Um, there was a small angel in the middle of it, but I had pictured a big man-sized angel with lots and lots of flowers. So it was so big, I, I stood there in amazement thinking, God, my baby could be buried away over there or just beside me. Or So I, I came back in disgust and... I never bothered, actually. It was must have been about nine more years before I went up to find out where my baby was buried. I actually was told how to go about it. The system that was then, like many systems, was an abomination, really. Because, for instance, we have nothing to remember of Antonia. We don't have a lock of her hair. We don't have a photograph. We don't know whether she was baptised. In fact, the only thing we have of her, really, were a little pair of booties that Mary had knitted for her coming home. But the mass grave idea, it's economics again, I suppose. But for a family, a grieving family, it is a terrible thing. Because since, even since we discovered the grave and identified the plot, it has made so much. And if you had... If you were sure where the grave was and you could go there, it would be a wonderful thing. Because my connection with Antonia, I mean, is, is lifelong, will remain so to such an extent that on occasions I have thought that I would like to be actually cremated and my ashes sprinkled there. 
Well, we have footprints, we have hair, we have photographs of Jack. I couldn't imagine, I couldn't, I actually couldn't imagine how a woman could mentally recover all those years ago. It must have been extremely difficult. I also used to find that going up to the grave and looking at it, and I suppose really it, it made it true, it made it real that this is what really had happened. It was just a place of, of solace, I suppose. It was a place that I, I just had to, to be. Going into the into the vaults where all the records are kept from 1832 to the present date. The Holy Angels book uh, is a total separate record altogether, because they're in, it's they go back right to the 1832 and the days of the famine. It's now called the Angels Plot, but prior to that it's called the Poor Ground. It was where the mass burials and things like that were done in the old days in the 1800s. Those big volumes up there, you see, there's well, maybe 50 of them up there. They include all those peoples, those names of the famine and cholera epidemics. But more current ones, I have them here, five of them there from, say, 1940 up to the present date. So if you want the name of any child that was buried in the Angels plot between then, say, from 1940 up to the present date, I'll pick it out for you straight away. They aren't on computer. We hope to do a, a project on that in the next year or two. The whole idea of the angel plot was because when babies, they weren't christened or baptised, so for some reason best known to the church, this, they were brought, all buried in this in some of the rural counties of Ireland. In fact, they weren't even allowed in the cemetery. They were buried in an angel's plot outside the cemetery. So it was then, late as the 50s and 60s came up, 70s, and particularly the early 80s, the Irish Stillbirth and Neonatal Death Society got in touch with us, asking us would we do something on tidying up this angel's plot. And we looked at it, we told them that around in the 60s we were tidying it up and we took a lot of headstones and mementos off the plot and the whole world came against us. How dare we do this? So we decided we'd leave it alone and put it all back. So that's where this whole thing started. Then we looked at it and took the idea that maybe if we put headstones up ourselves and developed it into a lawn cemetery where each plot would have a headstone which would take about 17 names. So that's what we've done now. In, in the late 80s, early 90s, we now have maybe three rows of, of maybe 90 plots each. And the families are coming up every day. The parents come up with the child First of all, that's the new and new and event as well in the eighties and nineties. Whereas before, the hospital just gave them over to an undertaker and they brought them up and we just buried them on their behalf. But now the families tend to come up themselves and watch the burial itself. Well, Pierce Matthew was our second baby and we were all excited. I felt brilliant while I was carrying him. I used to wake up at night times and say, "I feel wonderful." So I, I went into labour and. Uh, it was a perfectly normal birth, but at the end they held the mast over my mouth, you know, for the oxygen, and then he was born. And I remember uh, it was a nun at the time over the bed, and she was saying, I'm so sorry. And then I was sort of knocked out. I was sort of, 
you know, uh, must have got something to calm me down or something. When my husband inquired in them times, your husband wasn't with you. So he inquired and he came in and uh, he 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 was told by the doctor that the baby wouldn't live and he was advised that he could he was told he could see him but that I it would be better for me not to see him then i was in hospital for i don't know i think it was about 4 or 5 days my hair actually changed color with fright i was in a bad state anyway i had a lovely child here damien at home and uh, my husband came up to collect me and they my husband had arranged for it to go for a weekend to Scaries in a caravan. I remember coming down down the steps in the Coombe Hospital and if Damien was hiding behind, Austin had arranged to sort of give me a surprise. Of course, I was roaring because Damien hadn't got a, a brother to have. You know, we knew he was going to die. But um, when we went to Scaries, I was doing a lot of crying and um, we'd inquire and I suppose the second or third day we were there, uh, uh, when we were phoned, we were told he had died that morning. Anyway, we were asked, all right, what would we do? And I suppose in them times we sort of said, right, you, you can bury the baby. I I used to stand, even stand at the sink and think, he wouldn't be buried now if I could go up and see him. I mean, I, I really, really so much wanted to see him. And... Um, I went back for my checkup, and I remember the doctor saying, "Well, how was the baby?" Of course, I roared, crying, and said, "Well, the baby died." And um, and he said, "Well, the don't start right away. Take more time." And a lovely nurse says, well, "You know, if you whatever you want yourself," she says, "If you feel you want to start right away and all the rest." So he was born on the first of June, and the next year we had Fiona, and I was thrilled, charmed with myself that I had another baby. I remember when I had Pierce Matthew. Uh, one of the nurses said, you'd be better maybe to hold your baby before you leave the hospital. And um, I held the baby and it was a little girl and I got the shakes, you know, but I thought, well, maybe I'll get better. But I was really, all along, I was, I kept on thinking, why didn't they let me see him? He was mine. Years ago, we either didn't talk or weren't allowed to talk and express ourselves. And now there's which is a great thing. People are um, expressing how they feel and helping themselves, I suppose, to get well. That would be have hurt in the heart for years of children or babies that have died. And whether they're stillborn or like Pierce Matthew, he only lived for six days. Most mothers and fathers love their babies before they ever see them. And that's the way I felt about mine. That, uh, I love. I, I actually loved him and loved being pregnant with all my children. We got married in '69 on August the 12th, and then in July uh, of the following year, uh, the Mary's waters broke quite early on one summer's morning, and we drove in to the rotunda. A good friend of ours drove us in, and uh, I wanted to remain with Mary, but. Uh, the nurses at the Rotunda wouldn't allow me to stay. They, they more or less told me to go home. That was about half four in the morning. So I went home then and uh, went back to bed. And about ten o'clock that morning, then I rang the Rotunda to see was there any news, and there was no news. And then uh, I went into the hospital then myself on the bus around 11 or half 11, 
and I, I made my way upstairs and uh, I uh, identified where where uh, Mary was and uh, I saw that there was that there was a problem and then a nurse uh, came out of the ward to me and I, uh, I told her who I was and she asked me did it that sister wanted to see me and to wait and a sister came along then and told me that there'd been a problem that uh, that the baby had difficulty in breathing and was in an incubator and then a doctor came and uh, more or less told me uh, the same thing and uh, this really was uh, uh, the worst of all worlds because that very year I had been doing a course a year's an academic course for uh, teaching disabled children so I was well aware of what could happen in, in this situation. So um, I, I asked to see the baby and I, I, I saw the baby then in, a, in, a, in an incubator and then I went back uh, to my wife and uh, saw her and we, we didn't speak. Her eyes spoke for herself, you know, that uh, horror of horrors this thing had happened and she was quite heavily sedated and I sat with her and held her and uh, we did little speaking, really. And uh, the next day, then I came in. The next morning, I went up to see the baby, and a nurse told me the baby was dead. And uh, you know that was terrible. And Mary had been told about it. And I went into Mary, and and we were together for quite a while. And uh, I tried to uh, be as calm as I possibly could. And but when I came out of that ward, then. I remember well, I was on the corridor and uh, I put my head out the window into a chamber area and I really cried and sobbed. And uh, the only uh, piece of uh, humanity or consolation I got during the whole time in that hospital, I got it at that occasion from the lady who was cleaning the corridor. She came up and spoke to me very calmly and in a loving way. And the next day then, uh, before I left the hospital, I was asked to uh, see the the matron. There was a message for me in the matron's office. And when I went down there, I was handed an envelope. And uh, they were obviously thinking ahead. And and it was a short little note. And it read, Dear Mr. Jordan, I regret to inform you that your wife's baby had died. Stillborn is crossed out on the 23rd of the 7th, 1970. If you wish to make your own arrangements for burial, you should notify matron's office as soon as possible. And then they offered to do the burial themselves. And the last paragraph said, the charge is £2.15 and should be paid to the accounts clerk between the hours of 9am and 4.30 or 12.30 on Saturdays or a postal order together with your name and address may be sent to the accounts department. We would ask you to instruct us promptly in order to avoid undue distress. So we were in a state of shock. And in fact, one of the worst mistakes I certainly made in my life was we agreed that we would let the hospital um, bury the baby. Because we weren't in any position. We had never contemplated something like this. We were both from the country. So we let them do what had to be done and we signed a form for them to do an autopsy as well. And... um, after that, then, it was a question of visiting Mary on a regular basis. And then eventually uh, she came She came home 
to our house in Port Marnock. I just felt really, really heavy. I felt that I was just sinking. I thought I felt as if the folds of the mattress were sinking around me. Um, and, you know, I just had, like, almost shallow breathing with fear, you know, just if I stop for a second, this isn't happening. And just, I suppose it's it's a... I just never believed that something would go wrong. So here I was lying in a bed, um, hopefully on a very happy day, at the start of a happy day, and I was just in shock. I mean, at that stage, I didn't really realise that it was bad news, or that it, but I just had this apprehensive fear. And then the doctor came in and she had a little portable mobile um, monitor and she rubbed some jelly on my tummy and went over a few times and said, I'm sorry, Julie, there's no heartbeat. And um, I was in a very large ward at the time. It was before Hollis Street had done some maintenance on their wards and it was a very big room. But I was ushered um, um, on the bed, sheet over my head, flown out of the room into a small room on my own. And I was there for a little while, um, just completely in a daze. I knew the beginning for us was the end because when this baby was born, he had already died and we were going to have to go through the process of, of burying him and we didn't know how we were going to do that. And so it was actually quite beautiful when he was born and he was handed to me because he was perfect. And uh, I think for the for the first few days, I was just numb. I couldn't believe that this had happened. Jack was born early on a Thursday morning. I left the hospital on a Friday morning. My brother and my father-in-law had gone up to Glasnevin and spoken to somebody up there. And they had been shown the angel's plot, which was the new angel's plot. And they had been shown a little grave just beside the angel's plot. And Anthony, my brother, rang and said, you know, well, what do you want? And we really didn't know what we wanted, but he said something about a tree being near the the grave. So we said, oh, well, we'll have, we'll pick that one. So we didn't actually go up to the grave or anything like that until the morning that Jack was buried. We had a little service in the Glasnevin Cemetery. Um, we had a friend who was a priest and we picked a few readings that we wanted and, you know, verses of a, of a psalm and things like that. I think that particular day, it was unreal. We had, Anthony and Ian had gone into the hospital and they had they had got Jack out and, you know, Jack was in a little white coffin carried in the back of a car, brought back to the church. Um, we had the service. We walked behind the grave diggers. Ian was carrying Jack's coffin um, I was afraid that Ian was going to faint. I kept telling him I'd hold the coffin. I remember that. And he was saying, no, no, I can manage. And then just before we put him in the ground, I remember saying to Ian, well, I, I, need, to, I need to hold the coffin just to put my hands on it. And he was buried then. First, Matthew MacDonald. It's down as newborn MacDonald because we wouldn't have the name at the time they give it. It was one week old, the Coombe Hospital. 
date of death was June the 6th, or June the 7th, and is buried in MA 89 South. He's male, Catholic, Clark's child, Augustine and Jane. And that's the undertaker. That's, that's, that's the invoice written. So that's it. Now, if you want me to show you where that actual plot is, we can go out that way and show it. Okay. Now, we're getting a lot of these books. If, if normally when the families come on into us on this and they give us a day, June 89, 30 years, and we can't find it firstly, we go a year, June 70, and June 68, and invariably it's one of those years. But we need a month, as you can imagine, looking for a name, any name, just take a name, Duffy. April 1989 you could go through it and you'd never get it but that's why and you see notice it's only the mammy and daddy's name and that's why these records are very confidential because maybe somewhere down here you might see the name of in the old days and there was a lot of things like illegitimacy it's not no, no longer called that it's either a child of so you go and see the angels plot itself now Here to the right. Well, it's called the Holy Angels Plot basically because the majority of interments in it are either the stillbirth babies or babies of one day, one, one hour old, and that's the reason. Most of the time, in the 50s and 60s, the babies used to be given to the funeral director who brought them up here and we buried at then. When this began to get public in, in the 1980s, families, mothers in particular, would be coming up here and they hadn't come near the place for maybe 30 or 40 years and didn't realise that there was a register. And when we brought them, say, down to the plot and leave them and... Some of the grief was kind of hor horrific at times, but then, then the mothers used to come into the office and, and thank us profusely because it lifted a load off their mind. We had one lady in particular, she had her baby in 1940, come from Killarney once a month. She used to stop at the cemetery gate and uh, just say a little prayer and she came in to find out what would be possible. And we weren't busy, so we brought her down. And uh, she came up the next week with the husband and went through the whole process of burial. And as she said herself, it was 40 years waiting to do that. And it was some years after that again, I didn't bother going because I didn't even think of inquiring about it until um, the next door neighbour said that there was an article in the paper about Glasnevin was trying to do up uh, the Holy Angel plot. So I rang up and um, the girl said that there was two Holy Angels plot and where Pierce Matthew was, it was the older one. So she said that I could easily find the exact spot of where my baby was buried and I couldn't believe it, that I was entitled to a birth certificate and a death certificate because Pierce Matthew lived for six days. Um, I went to Glasnevin and um, the 
attendants picked this huge book up and I gave him my particulars. He was writing down a number and I said, well, hold on. I still was very sceptical and I said, well, tell me what's on that book. And uh, when he told me my maiden name, I was, I really couldn't believe that what the girl had said on the phone, that I can really find the actual spot. So he sent down a man with me and on our way down he was saying how his mother had buried twins and never forgot them either and so he said he hadn't a measured tape that day but that it would be the nearest and I said oh yeah I'll be quite satisfied and I was nearly under a tree and I was delighted with myself while I was very very sad but I thought well this is really recognition for a baby that I didn't even see so we got a tiny little headstone with his name on it it's nice to see his name when there was never, we always spoke about Pierce Matthew and my children, you know, they even pray to him. They, we all have this thing that he's definitely in heaven, which helps us anyway. The plot of where the baby Pierce Matthew is, we are at it just now. And... Um, we walk along the pathway here. One of the ways we know where it is, it's, it was the identification of the plot was MA 89 South. We're walking along here, and on our right hand side, we see a stone and it says OA, and it goes alphabetically AA, B, all the way up. So we walk down here a little bit until we see MA on this stone, which is approximately here. Now in line with this stone, and we look up towards the Finglas, the wall there, at the road, at Fingless Road, and we walk straight up this way. And we take that. Now, now every two foot on this grass verge is a plot. And here we are at Baby Pierce Matthew McDonald's. Now this is the way the plot in the 60s and the 50s. People put these big surrounds around it. Now in that plot alone, there are 18 other little stillborn babies. Now if everybody put a monument on that, it would be impossible to maintain. Even on this side of it here, in fact, where it's just blank, it's MA90. There is possibly another 18 stillborn babies, but there's no marking there. Now, to maintain this cemetery, this part, as a lawn cemetery, we'd have to take up that. But as I was saying, the family's kicked up murder. Absolutely. We, you, you, because some families, just take, it's part of their grieving process. So we left it alone. So if we mark out a grave, for instance, up here like this, we'll ask the person or the parents not to put anything on it because we want to take it away. But we'll allow them, if you see over there, a uniformity of plaques. They're all... Since 19, only 1989, um, when families heard that we could mark their spot for them, each of those plaques holds 70 names, and there's at least 15 plaques already full in 10 years. So there is a huge d demand for that. One of the one of the things one of the paradoxical things I suppose in one way although in another way it's not is I think of Antonia oh very often very often and on a regular basis and right up to this day and the times I think most of her 
is the times when I am most happy. And in fact, in 1987, I note that I wrote a little poem which illustrates this particular irony, possibly. And it was written at Christmas 1987. That's 17 years after the event. And it says, The stars shine brightly on this cool Christmas night. A red candle flames from our window. I wave to my wife and daughter as they pass to midnight mass. A white stocking hangs limply. A young girl sleeps expectantly. Happiness wells within me, unwished for, unwanted. So soon by thought of you, my firstborn, my cross, my joy, the swell is overtaken. Thrice I saw you, yet you are the measure of all I am. The eyes fill, the tears fall on my cheeks. It is a sacrament I receive from you, my girl in the incubator, who was not there when last I called. But removed, transferred to a cold, loose, wet clay in a wooden shoebox, beneath a tree, beside a stony path in 1970. So, during that time then, I had the feeling that I would like to make it known that Antonia had lived, that she was there. I, I as I say, phoned the office in Clasnevin and they were terrific and they told me the code. So I, I sussed it out for myself. They have numbers and letters on the walls and you go up there and it's a very bare and windswept place and the, the grave where the 70s happened, it's, it's a hodgepodge of little memorials, wooden, metal and uh, areas where there's no memorials at all. But it was the most wonderful feeling to go there. It was a journey that had to be made. And though it took many years to make it, it was fantastic. Because it it was a link. We all lived through links, links with people. And this was a link that had been severed early on. But you were able to keep a link through a grave. And that continues to today. The oldest one is way up, up near the Talca River. It's totally unmarked. There's no monument, there's one big monument on it, all right, just said souls of little children, and that's it. But t- these women would probably be now 70 years of age. And we don't expect that many to come up to it, but just in case. area here is all uh, where that's Parnell's monument over there and he wanted to be buried with the poor of Dublin and they were all buried that was all known as the poor ground as well and the children and all were buried around that time as well in that where it's all grass we don't intend to sort of develop that anyway just yet Now we're coming up to the modern angels plot where we developed it into a sort of a lawn cemetery. Two reasons, one the demand of it and the, uh, the respect people are giving 
the, the still birds. But you'll see the contrast of what it was and what it is and, and the difference. Now there it is, it's like there's four, four roads like a military cemetery. Some people criticise it being it's, it's too uniformity and too sort of modern. And uh, more like a, nearly something said recently, it was like a football field in front of it. But the reason we have that there is because we're moving up all along on the time. So this year now in June, we'll be putting another 40 headstones in the line, all with no names on them. And if we just walk down and you can see the mementos that are left on the graves. They're both back and front. We have trees planted in the middle. And now if you look at what, what I meant by the contrast, see the far section, that was pre-70 and 80, where we tried to tidy it up. We took off all the headstones and monuments and brought them to one side. But the public created demand, how dare we do that, so we had to put it back for them. So what we do now is, the headstones are pre-laid, and there's enough room behind them to put on their teddy bears and everything else, and we don't allow them on the front of the grave, because we grass it over. And maintaining it is very simple, a lawnmower come in and just up and down it. In the first year, I would have spent a lot of time up at the grave. I would have gone up to the grave most mornings of the week. Um, I just had to go there. I had to visit. This is the place where my son was. I had to make contact with him. It wasn't that I was particularly religious about going and, and, and praying to him or anything. I just needed to be near him. Um, it's a very special place for us now. It's a place where Jack is buried. It's a place where we go to on family occasions, his birthday, Christmas, Easter. We make the ground nice around it. We have plants. Um, we also planted a garden in our own house in Dublin and we dug that up when we moved down to Sligo and that's out in the garden here as well. And that's a special place because although we don't live in Dublin anymore, we have two Jack's places, if you like. We have our little place in the garden and we have his, his little grave in, in Glasnevin. Now we're down there, you can see that we're finishing this section now. We have one, two, four, only four headstones left, which will, by the end of June they'll be cleared. And then we'll start at this tree then and work up and have another row. And you see they're back to back. If we just go over in behind one, These graves are numbered. We're standing at RI 43, for instance, whereas in the, and the, all the names, and one headstone, 17 names on it. They're going from 1995 up to, all 1995. And if we just walk up across the, where we started, this was in 1989. And on the other side of it, what I was saying, it's actually impossible to maintain. Even though it, it looks nice now, what we did was um, weed kill it around the plots. And you can see where all the headstones are. Five different little hearts on the graves for the family. There's one here, maybe there's nearly 25 in it.
I know exactly where he's buried. You know, while I always thought of him in heaven, like, but it's just, you know, it's to identify him. It's like when I got the certificate, it's like, you know, you feel I did have this baby and he did exist. And this is a place where I can go if so wish. And my children and grandchildren, they know that they have a brother. And it's a nice feeling to know that that's where he was laid to rest. And I, I know now where the spot is. And uh, even this is 1999, and only last week I was in the post-primary class here, and we were reading a poem written by a girl about old photographs. She was watching her mother looking at old photographs, and her mother told her that some of the photographs were sad but precious. And I was talking to the class about how could a photograph be sad but precious? And we were talking around that, and some of them had very good ideas. And... I was able to tell them that, in fact, at home in my own house, I had an example of that, that I had a little photograph of Antonia's grave and that that photograph was extremely precious to me, but that it was also extremely sad, but yet it was a wonderful thing. So something could be sad, but yet extremely precious. In loving memory of her first grandson, loved and remembered by nannies and granddads, aunties and uncle. The Santa Claus, a Wallace and Gromit. Oh look, there's a little teddy bear. Snowman. Our Lady. And what else is there? A little plastic duck. A little religious icon, sprayed in gold. A little plastic cow. I wonder who left that up. And look, it's a Teletubbies windmill. Big and bright and blue. New looking by the looks of it, and obviously very 1990s. With the long wooden handles stuck down into the fresh soil here beside the, the headstone. In fact, all the graves are just flooded with memorabilia. It's unbelievable. Big bunch of beautiful silk flowers with just love from your brothers. It goes on and on. All those lives. footballers, two little boys holding footballs, the pottery boys. And um, I suppose whoever it was possibly was hoping for a football mate to play football with and it was never to be. 